Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. Hey podcast listeners, it's Bria here with you once again. Just wanted to let you know that today's podcast is a bit longer. It's about 30 minutes with Freda Gimpel, who is a dear friend of mine, was my former CFO and board member, currently a business manager at a small independent school here in New York and is a CPA. We cover the basics of nonprofit finance and how to best present financials to your board. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did recording it. Also, I will put her information in the show notes if you have any questions for her or want to get in contact. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Freda, for joining us today. It's wonderful to be here, especially on Halloween. Halloween. Trick or treat. No no tricks, just treats. Freda, tell me a little bit about how you got started in nonprofit. I started my career as a CPA in public accounting, always loving working with nonprofit organizations. And after about 10 years, I jumped ship and I became a CFO for several arts organizations, including Florida Grand Opera, where I, I lived in Miami for many years, then the Metropolitan Opera and Jazz at Lincoln Center. Perfect. And then here in New York? And I jumped over and wanted to expand my range, so I got into education and came to the independent school community. What advice would you give to nonprofit leaders? Because I know many of my peers in nonprofit they see a P&L statement or a budget or a balance sheet and they go running in the other direction. And it's part of being a nonprofit leader is that you have to understand the finances. So how can people get started without getting overwhelmed with finances and accounting? Well, I would say firstly, don't be afraid. Think about your own budget at home. It's not that different. You know what you have coming in and you know what you need to have going out, and then you know what you want to have going out. So first you take care of need, and then you can move on to want. And it depends on how much you have to work with. I think it's really important to always build up a reserve. You need something for a rainy day in your personal life and with regard to your budget for your nonprofit. Start small, put away what you can, but be disciplined about it. And before you turn around, you will have saved up a little nest egg. And the more you have in there, the better you'll sleep at night. When you lose a funder, when a contribution doesn't come in, you need to know you still have people who work for you to pay, you need to pay the rent or whatever your fixed expenses are. So building up a reserve is particularly important and always have a plan B. Mm. You look at your budget and you say, okay, if the worst happened, what would I cut and what would I do? And just knowing that you have that will give you a lot of peace of mind. So sometimes nonprofit folks worry that if they have too much in reserve or, or too big of an endowment, that that will be a deterrent for funders. What would you respond to that? I would say not necessarily. People want to know that they're backing an organization that is very responsible and is going to be able to make their next payroll. And I think that's a little bit of an old story that doesn't apply so much anymore. People want to know that the organization is healthy and does have reserves, and everyone understands the need and the importance of having those reserves. I would say for many funders, if they look at an organization that has no reserves, 
they're less likely to say, you know what, I don't want to throw good money after bad. So I think that that is old thinking and doesn't really apply anymore. I'm going to change text a little bit here. You have been particularly brilliant at helping me to think about how to present financials to board members, particularly at board meetings where I have board members who may not necessarily understand nonprofit accounting, having come from the for-profit world. So can you give us any pointers about how to best present financials to board members? First of all, you want to keep it simple. And you want to make your assumptions clear at the beginning. Put them on a piece of paper in a, in a little box. Like, for example, every organization has some key levers. What's a key lever? For example, in a school, how many children and what tuition are you charging? For a social service organization, how many people are you serving? You have to make an assumption. Are you serving 100 people or 1,000 people? And base your budget. What are your main assumptions? How much are you going to charge for your service mm -hmm. if you do charge? How much can you rely on to come in in contributed support if you don't have earned revenue? How many people are you serving? And another thing, if you did have an endowment, how much money are you going to take out of your endowment? Once you have your assumptions, other things fall into place. Most things are fixed. Your salaries and benefits are generally fixed. Your rent is fixed. Those are those are the biggest things. After that, the discretionary money is so small that you can't be too far off on that. Another thing is no surprises. When you're presenting your numbers, the worst thing you can do if you're going before your board or whoever it is that's going to approve your expenditures or approve your budget is the, the last thing that people want to learn in a room when they're looking at your numbers is, is any surprise at all. Sometimes you have difficult news and you hold it back. It's the worst thing you can do. And if you have some board members who might be particularly difficult, the best favor you can do to yourself is to call them before the meeting. Make an ally first. Have them on your side. Or at least if they're going to disagree with you, let them do it over the phone before the meeting. Let them get it out of their system. And then when you're in the boardroom amongst others, you will see that 99 times out of 100, they just needed to say it and they needed you to hear it. Then they'll settle down and you'll find that very often they'll turn around and support you in what you're trying to present. So absolutely no surprises. Another thing is put the frame around the picture. If you start out in the weeds with little details, mm. you go into a tailspin and you're never able to get people back up to a 10,000-foot view, which you need them to have, especially, for example, if you want to get a budget approved, mm -hmm. that's your goal going into the meeting. Don't be thrown off by other things. Keep your eye on the ball and keep your eye on what your goal is. That's to get your budget approved. Yeah, such good advice. And I think that one of the other things that you once told me was how to use titles in a PowerPoint presentation. That's right. If you were, for example, showing a chart that was a five-year history of contributions. You could put the title on your chart as five-year history of contributions, or you could not bury the headline and you could tell what the story is. The title of the chart could be Foundation Support Declines 50% Over Five Years. Now, your chart will show that, but if you have someone who's not adept at reading a chart or doesn't want to be bothered, or really isn't paying that much attention to you, all they have to do is look at the top of your slide, and they'll get the main point 
that you're trying to make with the chart you're showing. So don't bury the headline. Love that. Another thing that you once told me when you were my CFO is I, I think I said something like, well, what do the numbers say? And you said, well, what do you want the numbers to say? <laughs> so, which is not to say that you were doing any financial malfeasance, but rather I think we have this idea that numbers don't lie, but in fact, it's really about how you present the numbers. It's the presentation and it's the interpretation. And above all else, you absolutely want to be transparent, but think about the story that you're going to tell before you present it. On the topic of presentation of financials, do you have any tips for how to present financials to funders? Because a lot of times when you write a grant proposal, they'll ask for a budget. And I've certainly been in the position of like, well, I'll just run a you know report off of QuickBooks and just submit it. But how would one present numbers in such a way that would be both understandable and appealing to a funder? Right. A funder wants to know Certainly how much you're spending on your program versus your administration or your fundraising. The IRS, of course, wants to know that as well, but your funders are really looking for that. They want to know how much is going into your program. So you don't have to get too granular. You should have the information and a backup for your programmatic costs in case it's asked for or in case you're going for funding for a specific part of your general program. But what they're really concerned with is is to know that you're a good steward of the money that they're going to give you and presenting your numbers in a very simple way. The easier you can make it going down for them, the better served you're going to be. I think that short is better. It's easily digestible. You never want to put a funder or a board member, for that matter, in a position of putting numbers in front of them that they can't easily understand. Mm. So keeping it simple is fine. You won't insult them by doing that. If you think that they may ask for more, have it with you, have it done. And if you don't need to use it, it was just really good insurance to have it. But keep your numbers simple, show your revenue sources, Mm -hmm. show what you're going to spend their money on Mm -hmm. and recognize what the gap is. And that's what you're there to ask them for, to fund that gap. So that brings up an interesting point because I think sometimes we think of certain salaries or certain expenses as being strictly administration or strictly fundraising or strictly program. But I mean, the truth is, say an executive director salary can be allocated over a bunch of different programs and fundraising and so forth. So it's, you know, strictly speaking, would you agree that salaries aren't limited to one category? That's correct. But there's some new news out on that, on the accounting front. You are allowed to allocate, say, for example, an executive director salary amongst programs, administrative and fundraising. The key there is to be consistent and do the same allocation year after year. That's what any watchdog is going to look for. Don't say one year the executive director spent 20% on programs and the following year they spent 80% on programs. That's really not going to fly with anyone. The new news is in the accounting standards, there is going to be much more accountability And you will actually have to disclose in your financial statements what method of allocation that you have used on any cost that you allocate. So there's going to be a lot more accountability for that. You need to think about your allocations and be consistent from year to year and also 
funders will be looking at that now, and they will understand it as well. A couple of different questions I have about that. So I know in the last couple of years, there's been a real push by the nonprofit sector to to not look at overhead strictly as an indication of efficiency. In fact, GuideStar and Navigator, Navigator both put out statements about about that fact. Where, where do you stand on that issue, and do you think that the trend is changing? I think that any savvy funder understands that you can't run an organization without administrative costs. And as long as they are not unreasonable... What's unreasonable? Unreasonable would be 25% or more. That's a lot for administration. Programmatic costs, you know, your goal is is to be over 65%. Mm-hmm. You know, fundraising, you would hope that you're 15% or less and the remainder, you know, for administration. A great organization might be 75 to 80% programs, 8 or 9% for fundraising and 20% or under for administration. I think that there is a different understanding of administrative costs and as we as the world now is a lot more about compliance, things like employee retention, HR policies, things like that, funders understand you have to have an audit, you have to have certain trainings, you have to offer certain benefits. And these are not necessarily programmatic costs, but you can't attract talent to your organization without incurring these types of expenses. And I think it's an obligation of the organization as well to explain this to a funder and explain properly. I can't see that anyone would think that it's not reasonable. Part of your background, aside from you know, the finance and, and being a CPA, is that you also have a great deal of knowledge about HR and management. And I'm just wondering, to your point, you know, in the nonprofit sector, we think a lot about staff retention and how to keep people in the seats, particularly because a lot of our a lot of our staff members tend to be on the early side of their career and aren't paid a great deal. Do you have any thoughts about what levers nonprofits can use in order to really keep people in the seats and and to retain them? Recognition is something that does not have to cost a lot. Mm -hmm. Recognizing your employees, doing whatever you can, doing, doing small things. Where I work, we actually just started a program that, relatively speaking, is very inexpensive. It helps employees who come in having student loan debt. It's a small amount, but we actually help pay something toward their student Mm. loan debt through a program we have in association with with our bank, actually. And I feel that this was so popular, it didn't cost a lot. And it was so popular that we actually had a couple of employees cry when they found out about it because because that's how much it meant to them. So it doesn't have to be something very expensive, but you have to think about what do my employees need? What, what will make a difference in their lives? And for what you might spend on donuts mm-hmm. or coffee, it, that's not a good use of money. Mm-hmm. You know, something that goes toward your finding a way to say to them, we know what you're going through mm-hmm. and we feel that we can do something to help. Or start a program, even if the employee has to pay a portion of it, even a large portion, just kicking in something, what you could kick in for a dental policy Mm -hmm. for your employees, 
it, dental policies don't have the best coverage, but it's something. It's more than they have now. Mm-hmm. It's not that expensive. And even if the employee paid half and you were able to pay half, it will be the equivalent of what you would spend on all those donuts and coffee in a year. And yeah. you're doing something much better for your employees. I remember when I was an ED, we had a very, very generous medical benefit policy. And because I had a lot of younger employees, they never went to the doctor. And it killed me because I was like, we're paying for this very rich policy. But in fact, I think we would have been better served maybe having a less generous policy and maybe reallocating some of that to something like student loan repayment or something that was a more immediate concern of of theirs. So that's a great point. Right. Well, you know, having a young staff makes a difference also. As people get a little older, they're they're definitely more concerned about that uh, medical coverage and a topic for another day will be HSA plans and how <laughs> how they can benefit the employer and the employee greatly. Okay, well we will definitely talk that's about another, HSA plans. That's another but that's a topic plans. for another day. Okay, sounds good. So, can you talk to me about some of the biggest mistakes you've seen nonprofits make in their financial lives? I think some large mistakes come from not laying the ground rules on what is the responsibility of the organization versus the responsibility of the board in terms of getting involved with finances. You need to delineate when you let board members get into the weeds of your finances, it can paralyze the organization's ability to run. Just in terms of that sort of a a 10,000-foot mistake. Getting back down into the weeds a little bit, another mistake that I see is where where meetings will get derailed. Very often in presenting financial information, you have a column for your budget, a column for your actuals, and a variance column. Mm. And that variance column is a disaster Mm. for several reasons. It could be, well, you know, gee, last year at this time we had $50,000 in, and this year we only have $30,000. This is a terrible thing. Well, and you explain it's a timing difference. Well, such and such a a donor gave their donation earlier last year than this year, and we're still getting it. So it's simply a timing difference, but it has derailed your meeting. And also with variance columns, okay, if you have a negative number in the variance column, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're talking about revenue, a a negative variance is generally a bad thing. If you're talking about expenses, a negative variance means you didn't spend as much, you saved money, so it's a good thing. So these things are hard to understand. Much better way to look at it, I think, what's always been very effective for me, is, okay, we budgeted a break-even budget that we would have a zero bottom line. And our projection now, or our year-to-date actuals, show that we have an $80,000 surplus. Here's what happened. We had this funder come in that we didn't expect, or someone underwrote our rent expense for four months. But just explaining it in a narrative, rather than asking people to work so hard and look at every single line item, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it up? Is it down? Could be a timing difference. Get rid of all that keep it simple. Or we had an unexpected legal bill that was $20,000 or, you know, whatever it might be, the three or four main things that affected the difference of where you thought you would be Mm -hmm. and where you're ending up now. So you think you should include the budget and the year to date, but to get rid of the variance? I think so. Or to do a variance that just says, 
in, in a few lines, here's where we started, plus, minus, here's where we stand now. And in terms of year-to-date actuals, sometimes depending on the organization, it's a lot better to say, here's what we budgeted for the year, and now, based on new information, as we are in the year, here's where we think we will land is better than sometimes the year-to-date actuals, If you're especially if your money comes in seasonally mm-hmm. or if your expenses are seasonal. It's not really a true reflection. It's better to look at a whole year at a time. Brings up another interesting point because I know a lot of nonprofits have folks coming from corporate backgrounds on their boards. And some of the biggest challenges I've had on the finance side with my board is explaining the difference between nonprofit finances and translating it to corporate. What are the main differences that you see and how can folks help ease the transition for their board members? Well, explaining A, that there's no tax consequence Mm -hmm. to anything because nonprofits are generally exempt from federal tax. Also, to understand just some of the terminology, we talk in, in the corporate world, they talk about net worth or retained earnings or retained capital. In the nonprofit world, we call that net assets. It's basically the difference between your assets and your liabilities. It's called net assets. And we don't call it an income statement or a P&L. We call it a statement of activities. It's just a little glossary would help a lot just so that people can Mm -hmm. understand. And a lot of things that are very important in the corporate world, like the method of depreciation, for example, in nonprofit, it's just straight line depreciation. It doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Again, because there's no tax consequence. The one other thing that I always found difficult were quarterly projections because I had board members who would say, well, what do we expect to come in, you know, this quarter or next quarter? And I could always answer, well, you know, we have a confidence interval that X number of grants will come in or we think, you know, these donations might come in. But because we weren't selling anything, we didn't have widgets to sell, I always felt like they wanted a level of certainty for me that I couldn't give because we were purely relying on philanthropic dollars. That's right. And when you have that reliance and you don't have any earned revenue coming in, it's it's definitely harder. And you have to either yourself remind your board or very often a board member will do this and it's better coming from one of them, that there is an element of a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And if you couch it as saying, this is what we need to do in order to achieve the program that you want to support, and we have to make it happen. It's, this is what needs to be done. And this is, again, why the reserve is so important for the board members to know, hey, if the money doesn't come in and payroll has to be met, it's nice to know you have a reserve to do it. I have actually been involved with organizations where board members had to write checks at the last minute to cover a payroll. You never want to be in that position. It's awful. But there is a leap of faith. There's there's really no answer to your question, Rhea, mm-hmm. because you can't guarantee that a funder will fund or that a donation will come in. Well, if I could guarantee that, I'd be a much happier person. Well, of course. But if a board commits to carrying out a certain program Mm -hmm. and commits to the organization having the resources to carry out that program, then they are committing to saying, we're going to be responsible for this. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't happen because 
donations should come in based on past history. If you had an organization that took in a million dollars a year and for the next year's budget, you're presenting a budget that says you're going to bring in 10 million, well, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if you brought in 1 million last year, there's a reasonable expectation that at least a certain percentage of that will repeat. 80, 85%, and that you'll find new funders to replace the ones that fall off because that will happen too. Can we talk about the differences between finances that we can see between the finance office and the development office? Because I know development tends to count things in a different way than finance does. Right. So in theory, they shouldn't, but here's what happens. You know, the development office their job is to say the glass is half full. The finance office, it's not that their job is to say the ha- that the glass is half empty, but it's to report that there is indeed half a glass, mm. right? In terms of money that has actually come in, it's usually timing differences in pledges. Mm. What's come in has come in, mm-hmm. and development and finance will have the same okay. results. When it comes to pledges, it depends on when they're collected. Mm. The finance office only wants to book or record in the statements those pledges that are certainly going to come in. The development office wants to be a little more optimistic about it. And this is right. You should, because if the finance office books a pledge and it in fact doesn't come in, then on next year's statement, that becomes a bad debt and a charge to next year's budget. Nobody wants that to happen. So the best thing to do is only book those pledges that you're fairly certain of. Development office should indeed keep pursuing them. They should, they should pursue any promise to pay, but the finance office should only book it if it, if there's something in writing, even if that's an email. If your organization has to have an, a certified audit, which more and more organizations are required to do, your auditors are only going to book something if there is something in writing, but they will accept an email. Not an, not an oral pledge, but something in an email saying, yes, I promise I'm going to pay this. And then there's the timing difference, too. If your year, for example, ends in June and something is collected in July, the question becomes, well, does it go into the year ended in June or does it go into the new year? And the correspondence leading up to that donation, the date on the check or whatever, those are the things that will help you determine which year it belongs in. But that little bit of of pull between finance and advancement is a little bit healthy. Speaking of audits, I know that obviously nonprofits have to do yearly audits. One thing that was a little bit tricky for us is around financial controls, because when we had a very small staff, we didn't actually have enough staff to separate the different tasks and control mechanisms. And so I'm wondering, do you have any advice for you know, small organizations that don't have a large staff to be able to separate out their various duties in order to ensure you know, fiduciary... Fulfill their responsibility. Right, good hygiene, I was going to say. Right. This is a very, very common problem, even in organizations that are not so small. Mm -hmm. There is never, if you you want to spend your money on programs, you're not going to overstaff your your finance office that you have proper what's known as segregation of duties. So there's a few simple things that you can do that will not cost any more money and will give not only the executive director, but the board and the auditors and everyone peace of mind. It's such a simple thing. 
the executive director should log on to the operating account, look at it, look at it once a week, mm. see what money came in and what checks went out. Mm -hmm. Just by virtue of the fact of your finance person know, or your bookkeeper knowing that the executive director is going to do that, that in itself is a deterrent, number one. And number two, when you're looking on screen, you do it for your own bank account. You go online and see what your transactions were. It's not hard to do. Mm -hmm. Just take a look and anything suspicious may pop out at you. If you know, for example, that you got a $50,000 donation and a week later, you don't see it credited mm -hmm. in the bank, you need to jump all over that mm -hmm. and you need to do it in a timely way. So many organizations find out something six or eight months later. That's really too late. Just hop on. It's an easy thing to do for the executive director to look at the mail. Mm. Just look at the mail, open it up, see what's there and distribute it. I'm not saying do that on a regular basis. And with all the junk mail we get, you can probably toss half of it. But the bills that are coming in and the checks that are coming in is what mm -hmm. you're concerned with. Another thing is most banks offer something called positive pay. Mm -hmm. There's no cost to it. It helps the banks too your bookkeeper or your accounting office sends uploads a file with a list to the bank of what checks were cut. Mm -hmm. If any check is presented for payment that is not on that list, the bank won't pay it. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And the banks are all for it and they, they push positive pay mm -hmm. because it helps them in terms of fraud and, and yeah. things like that. So those are three, look at the mail, Look online at what's going on in your bank account and institute positive pay. Those are three very simple things that really don't cost and are extremely effective. Last question I have for you. I, as you know, am the queen of a million and one ideas. And I was always yes, thinking I know about that. <laughs> different ways that we can make money, revenue generating ideas and so forth. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to what are the activities that might threaten an organization's nonprofit status and what are things that are allowed? I always came up with the Girl Scout cookies as my example. I was like, well, what's, what's going to be our Girl Scout cookie? And I think a lot of nonprofit leaders may not think about potential money-making ideas because of the fear of losing their 501c3 status. Right. The list is very long of what is okay and what isn't okay. But I would say as a general rule, as long as it doesn't take over, it, it has to be ancillary to your main mission. Mm -hmm. And you can do something that will generate some revenue, not your main revenue, because that will threaten your tax-exempt status. But you can do ancillary things to bring in some income. And you know what? If you have a profit on them, you may have to pay some tax. Mm -hmm. It won't threaten your nonprofit status. It's called UBIT, which stands for Unrelated Business Income Tax. And so you may have to pay some UBIT on some of these things, but it's like with your, with your personal finances. Better to make more money and pay tax than not to make the money, right? And look at things. Let's, let's look at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, for example. They have a huge gift shop that does millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of business each year. Do they have to pay tax on the profit they make there? Mostly, yes. They have to separate their sales in terms of what is programmatically related and what is not. So you think, what, they really do that? Like a book about Renoir, 
they don't have to pay tax on the revenue for that, but a coffee mug they do, that's right. Mm -hmm. And they actually do separate that, and mm -hmm. they report it separately. And why shouldn't they have to make, pay tax on the profit they make from the coffee mug? Because when you go into Pottery Barn and buy a coffee mug, they have to pay tax. So why should the Metropolitan Museum not have to? It depends. If it's a book about education, about art, that falls in one basket and the coffee mug falls in another. So you have to think about what you're doing. The Met gift shop is not closing down anytime soon because they do millions of dollars and it helps the organization and it promotes their mission and it gets their name out there. So don't shy away from things. Understand what the consequences will be. Now, if the gift shop at the Met represented 50% of everything that they bring in and everything that they spend, would their tax-exempt status be threatened? Absolutely. But if it represents... 5% or 10%, then absolutely not, okay? That's good advice. Any last thoughts as we as we close out? Just for anyone listening who's who's trying to run a nonprofit and carry out some excellent mission-related work, good for you. And don't be put off by all the regulations and the compliance. Just keep doing what you're doing, and I wish all of you the best. Okay, thank you so much, Rod. I appreciate it.